How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. The other night, Lisa and I marathon watched this show on Netflix about glass blowing. I think it's called, like, Glass Holes or something like that. But it was pretty good. Nice to see people make things. I did just have a couple of notes about the show that could take it from pretty good to pretty good. First of all, I think they kind of need to adjust the settings on the hosts. They go with a pretty standard format, which is there is one glass blowing expert, and then they have a guest expert every week. And then they have a third guy whose job is to not know anything about glass blowing as kind of an audience proxy. And I appreciate the idea because I'm a dummy who doesn't know anything about glass blowing. But I think they went a little bit too far because in the first season he's basically saying stuff like, okay, so glass, is that that shiny reflective thing that cookie sheets and pans are made of? And they're like, no, no, that's a, you're close. That's actually called metal. And he's like, oh. And the other thing that I think they could maybe switch up a little bit is that they are two seasons into a show about glass blowing, and thus far, nobody has made a bong. I feel like that probably should have been a day one challenge. Like, part one of the challenge is make a bong. Part two of the challenge is explain to the judge's moms why it's not a bong. Like, make them explain, okay, so this decorative flower vase has two chambers of water so that the flowers don't cough as much. I think that'd be an okay episode. And speaking of okay episodes, without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Eric Engelhard. After their first date, Easter bunnies won't hop and kiss. Though the hour grows late, Hub's still writing this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Eric. I considered holding off on that one until it was closer to Easter, but then I was at the store the other day, and they sold me a Cadbury cream egg, so that's Easter enough for my secular butt. Defenders, number 91. January, 1981. Defiance! Written by Ed Hannigan, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup! Valkyrie! Hellcat! The Incredible Hulk! Nighthawk! And Daredevil! Previously in the Defenders. Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, inherited a house in the idyllic, if oddly crime-ridden, suburban town of Montclair, New Jersey. This windfall coincided with the government seizing Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk's apartment, as part of an ongoing legal dispute, so the gang moved their headquarters down the turnpike to the Garden State. 
After some fun shenanigans which led to the Hulk purchasing and consuming a staggering amount of beans, hooray! Kyle decided to finally confront the allegations of gross financial malfeasance that awaited him in a New York courtroom. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to the billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast, a key member of his legal team, Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, had been kidnapped by the wildly problematic supervillain Mandrill and shoved into a bank vault. Mandrill was a baboon-faced asshole whose power set and origin were a minefield of racism and sexism. The semi-semblanced supervillain had the ability to control women's minds with his weaponized ape pheromones, and used this power to assemble an army of cerebrally subjugated subordinates he called Femforce. While Kyle and his shorthanded legal staff were presenting their opening arguments, Hellcat snuck into the beleaguered billionaire's confiscated apartment to reclaim a treasured mystical artifact before it fell into the government's hands. The object in question was the Shadow Cloak, a magical prehensile cape that Patsy had swiped off a bird-beaked demonic super-assassin a while back. In addition to being prehensile, the garment also allowed the wearer to teleport and retrieve any weapon from within its folds. It was also rad-looking. Hellcat quickly located her fancy magic cape, but soon thereafter was ambushed by Femforce, who had been staking out the building on Mandrill's orders. Femforce overpowered the cat-costumed crime fighter and gassed her up something fierce with the Mandrill's ape stink, until she too was under the Machiavellian monkey man's thrall. Across town, Daredevil used a combination of his super senses and some implausible plot contrivances to place a phone call from within the bank vault to interrupt the court proceedings and alert Kyle as to his predicament. Heedless of the fact that running out of a courthouse mid-trial to break into a bank might not reflect well on his lawyer's attempt to portray him as a law-abiding citizen, Kyle tossed on his bird suit and flew off to rescue his horn-headed pal. No sooner had the superheroic scofflaw absconded than Mandrill, flanked by Hellcat and Femforce, burst into the courtroom and used Mandrill's weaponized baboon sweat to enthrall every woman in the building, including the judge and Valkyrie, who along with Bruce Banner had shown up to lend Kyle some moral support. Perhaps predictably, given the escalating level of courtroom calamity, Bruce Banner freaked out and turned into the Hulk. The Mandrill's forces attacked the big green galoot, and a docket-clearing Donnybrook ensued. Nighthawk and Daredevil showed up mid-brawl and lended their gloved fists to assist their Emerald Amigo. During the fight, Kyle remembered that in a previous encounter, an electrical shock had freed Valkyrie and Patsy from Mandrill's control, so he tossed Hellcat into a downed power line or something. Damn it, Kyle! Fortunately, this near-fatal electrocution did indeed clear Patsy's head. The frazzled feline joined forces with the Hulk, Daredevil, and Nighthawk, and together, the courageous quartet renewed their attack on Femforce. Sensing that the tide of battle had shifted, Mandrill and Valkyrie fled the scene, leaving the rest of the defenders to round up the remains of Femforce and fret about the fate of their Asgardian erstwhile ally. God, Zooks! How will Kyle atone for violating a court order and fleeing mid-procedure? Does the Hulk eat any more beans in this issue? And will Mandrill finally succeed in his sinister scheme? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so by violating another court order and fleeing the court mid-procedure... Damn it, Kyle! No, but he does take a big bite out of the top of a roast turkey. Hooray! And I guess that depends. If his sinister scheme was to take a shotgun blast from behind and die from his wounds, then yes. 
Hooray? Nighthawk, Daredevil, Hellcat, and the Hulk stand before the judge whose courtroom they just smashed the shit out of. The judge is like, what the fuck is wrong with you jerks? I'm going to order that you all be held without bail. Bailiffs, take them into custody. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to glean from this that the judge is still under Mandrill's mesmeric thrall. In fact, members of Femforce who are waiting for the police to arrive gloat about this to their captors. But honestly, I gotta say, this seems like a pretty reasonable ruling. Kyle disagrees. The affluent avian aficionado is like, Fuck this! I'm out of here! And flies through the hole that the Hulk smashed into the roof. Daredevil is like, uh, don't worry about it, your honor. I'll go get him. And dashes off after the fugitive financier. The judge yells for him to come back, but to no effect. Hulk grabs Patsy and leaps off as well. Patsy's like, oh gee, bummer. Sorry, judge, but it's out of my hands. See ya. A few minutes later, the heroes meet up on a nearby rooftop to congratulate one another on once again avoiding due process and begin to plan their course of attack. Later that evening, in another part of the city, Mandrill reconvenes with Valkyrie and the rest of Femforce to plan their course of attack. Val is like, Can I please bash something with the flat of my sword? That's like, my favorite thing to do. Mandrill's like, I like your attitude. Yeah, tell you what, pretty soon we'll head upstate to the Aeroshaft nuclear power plant. I'm pretty sure I can find someone there for you to whack with your sword. Although, are you sure you wouldn't rather use the sharp edge or the pointy part? I mean, that's kind of the whole point of having a sword. No pun intended. Val is like, Well, I will if you order me to, on account of I'm under your thrall and such, but given my druthers, I'd much rather struggle to implement only the blunt parts of my magically sharp sword. Efficient weapon use really isn't my jam. Mandrill's like, Hey, as long as you follow my every command to the letter, you can do whatever you want. Neither the ape-appearanced archfiend nor his scent-subjugated sorcerously Scandinavian servant is aware that this conversation is not as private as its secluded location might suggest. Using his super-sensitive hearing to eavesdrop from outside, Daredevil has heard every word. The sartorially scarlet sightless superhero phones the defenders at their New Jersey headquarters and tells them to head to Aeroshaft. How did Daredevil track Mandrill down? Easy. Mandrill has stink-based powers, and Daredevil has super-smelling. Mandrill's ape aroma might as well be an olfactory lojack as far as Matt Murdock is concerned. Once the rest of the defenders get Murdock's message, they start preparing for the upcoming confrontation. Patsy's worried that Mandrill might try to take her brain over again, but Kyle's like, Don't sweat it. I had this bracelet made that delivers you an electrical shock every second. Patsy's like, Wow! You had that made in the few hours since you found out that we'd be fighting the Mandrill? Kyle's like, uh, sure. That's exactly when I had it made. Let, let's go with that. The Hulk takes a big bite out of the top of a roast turkey. Hooray! Thus fortified for battle, our titular non-team begins their journey upstate, leaving their new housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, to wonder whether her new employers will be returning or if she can just go ahead and put the rest of the turkey in the compost. Dolly, if you're listening, the answer to those questions are yes, and it's up to you. I mean, yeah, meat scraps are rich in nitrogen and can facilitate breaking down the compost pile, but 
The resulting odor will attract pests, and also, according to the last few pages, allow Daredevil to find your house. So if you want to find yourself overrun with raccoons and super lawyers, then by all means, compost your Hulk-contaminated turkey remnants. Otherwise, use the carcass to make a stock, and then keep the bones in the freezer until the night before trash is collected. As Dolly Donahue tackles the hot-button issue of poultry disposal, Matt Murdock sneaks aboard Mandrill's private jet and joins the perfidious primate as a stowaway on his trip to the power plant. When the plane lands, Valkyrie and Mandrill disembark and make their way to the facility's entrance, and Daredevil sneaks off to find a hiding place where he can wait for the rest of the defenders to join him. Mandrill and his enthralled entourage make their way past the throng of protesters who have gathered outside the power plant, noting briefly that a high percentage of those gathered are women and therefore susceptible to Mandy's ape stink. The demonstrators are not the baboon-looking baddie's primary target. Instead, he makes a beeline for a middle-aged couple who is entering the building and preparing for their workday. Turns out, the couple is Mandrill's parents. The reunion is not a happy one. Well, Mandrill's a little bit happy about it, but the reason he's happy is because he's going to murder his dad, so I don't think that really counts. You see, back in the day when Mandrill was just a kid, his folks decided they weren't crazy about the fact that their son was a mutant. So his dad took him out to the middle of the desert and left him to die. Harsh. Only Mandrill didn't die. Instead, he found some water. Then he teamed up with an albino mutant vampire, and after a while found out that he had a magic ape stink that he could use to control women's minds. There was also a bunch of super shitty, overtly racist crap mixed in there as well, but we've talked about that at length in previous episodes. For some reason, Mandrill's always harbored a bit of a grudge against his pop for leaving him to die. Go figure. He has Femforce hold his parents at gunpoint, and clues us in on his plans such as it is. Mandrill aims to breach the core of the power plant, then drag his dad in there and make him take off his hazmat suit and hang out until he dies of radiation poisoning. Then, something something, take over the world, possibly using the power plant or the protesters in some way, and have his mother live a life of brainwashed luxury in an exalted ceremonial position? I think... it's a little vague. Regardless, the first step of the plan is for Mandrill and half of Femforce to put on hazmat suits and escort his dad to the core, while his mind-controlled mom leads the rest of Femforce up to the control room to disable the safety precautions. The good news is, the defenders have finally arrived. Hooray! The bad news is, with Valkyrie playing for the other team, Kyle is in charge of strategy, so their plan is about as well thought out as their opponents. Hellcat intercepts Mandrill's mom and the Femforce flunkies that are on their way to the control room. She holds her own for a bit and zaps as many of them as she can with a little handheld taser which restores the zapped ladies to their previous level of pre-Mandrill autonomy. Which, considering that they're women in a 1981 Marvel comic book, is probably not all that high. Patsy is pretty badly outnumbered. She eventually manages to shock or just plain beat up most of the ladies, including Mandrill's mother, but one particularly plucky, if it still counts as plucky if you're using that pluck to follow someone else's mental commands, member of Femforce, breaks through and pulls the lever that opens the door to the power core. 
uh-oh. And make that a double uh-oh, because guess who's stepping out of the shadows to engage Hellcat in armed combat? What? No, it's not the drummer Don Brewer. What a terrible guess. In the early 80s, he was still touring with the recently reunited Grand Funk Railroad. And soon after that, he'd be joining Bob Seger's Silver Bullet Band. Either way, he's busy. Guess again. And this time, pick someone who wasn't touring with Grand Funk Railroad. No, it's not bass player Mel Shaker. I know he wasn't touring in support of GFR's 1981 live album, but he was still part of the band. And if he was too afraid of flying to tour with the band, then he's certainly not going to be flying from his home in Michigan to a nuclear facility in upstate New York just so that he can fight a costumed superhero. And before you ask if it's Mark Farner, I'll just tell you, no, it isn't Mark Farner. It's Valkyrie, okay? Val pulls out her sword and prepares to engage her former friend in combat. Reluctantly, Hellcat retrieves the sword from the depths of her shadow cloak and defends herself. The fight is surprisingly evenly matched. Valkyrie is by far the superior swordswoman and has a decided advantage in terms of strength, but she's severely hampered by her mystically enforced inability to harm another woman, which is in direct opposition to her ape-stink-induced compulsion to obey Mandrill's orders. That, combined with Hellcat's agility, makes for a highly competitive fight. While Val and Patsy fence with one another, Daredevil and Nighthawk chase Mandrill into the reactor's core. Or they try to. Mandrill closes the door behind him and locks them out. Bummer. Kyle heads outside to grab the Hulk, who he had previously tasked with dispersing the protesters, and sees if he can smash through the door. Turns out he can. Hooray! In the time it takes the Jade Giant to smash through the protective door, Mandrill has triggered a meltdown and forced his hated dad to take off his protective hat. Minutes later, when the Hulk Kool-Aid mans his way into the chamber, Mandrill flees, secure in the knowledge that his father will not survive and that the power plant will explode. Exploding the power plant hadn't seemed to be part of his plan previously, but now he seems pretty into the idea. As Nighthawk and Daredevil look on, Hulk struggles to manually position the enormous cooling rods into place and avert the meltdown. It's a race against time, though, because the radiation from the core is, uh, over-radiating the Hulk's own radioactive powers, or something, and is turning him back into Bruce Banner. Kyle and Matt Murdock are so intent on watching the Hulk's progress that they fail to notice someone sneaking into the room behind them. The Hulk finishes his task and completes the transformation back to Brewstom, just in time to prevent everything from going kablooey. Hooray! Mandrill is watching events unfold from just out of sight. When he sees that Banner robbed him of his... chance to die in a nuclear incident, I guess? He becomes irate and pulls out a gun, intent on shooting a collapsed Bruce Banner in the back. Oh no! But then a shotgun blast erupts out of nowhere, and kills the mandrill. Eh. Turns out the person who snuck into the room while Dee Dee and Kyle were distracted was Mandrill's mom. She had swiped a shotgun from somewhere and shot her son in the back. Huh. Mandrill's dad props himself up on one arm and is like, Oh no! I always loved my son, but the little lady wasn't such a fan. She was always going on about murdering him. She's the one who convinced me to abandon him in the desert but I couldn't go through with it. 
I purposefully left him near some water so that it was only statistically likely, but not guaranteed, that he would die. Well, now I guess I'll never get that world's greatest dad mug that I was gunning for. Come on, honey. Let's go home so that I can get on with my slow, lingering death from radiation poisoning. Mandrill's mom is like, Sounds good. Daredevil is like, Lady, I'm not wild about the fact that you just murdered that guy. But, I guess he was your son, so you can do what you want with him. Better give me that shotgun before you go, though. Wouldn't want you killing any non-relatives now, would we? Nighthawk rushes Mandrill's dad to the hospital and thinks that he might not die after all, which is nice, I guess. And Daredevil sneaks Bruce Banner out the back door before the cops show up. Back up near the control room, Patsy and Valkyrie continue their duel. They fight to a standstill, but eventually, Valkyrie is overwhelmed by her inner turmoil. Her compulsion to attack Patsy, and the enchantment preventing her from hurting Patsy, short out her brain for a second and she collapses in a heap. Instantly, Patsy drops her sword and rushes to embrace her fallen friend. They have a nice hug, and Val goes back to normal. Hooray! The end. Hooray! Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Grand Funk Railroad, consult your local library. See if they have the book An American Band, The Story of Grand Funk Railroad by Billy James. If memory serves, it has a very nice picture of the butthole surfer's dog, which was named after guitarist Mark Farner. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah, actually, pretty good. Pretty good? Yeah, I know. What causes this high praise of your state of being? Gosh, I really couldn't tell you. You just happened to catch me on a good day. I think yesterday I was maybe as fed up with the whole pandemic thing as I have been since it started. And today, pretty good. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. How about yourself? Good. I got some seeds the other day for uh, getting the garden ready to go when it comes time to do that. That was exciting. Ooh, nice. Man, those things are just pure potential. Yep. Kind of like back-to-school shopping, like for school supplies. The beginning of the gardening season, you get to be like, this year, I'm going to be organized, and it's all going to be great. And you got weeks before that shit falls apart. Yeah, totally. Get out my Trapper Keeper, my pens, some scented erasers. Oh, man, you got the scented erasers? Well, you got to do that. Ah, maybe that's why I was such an academic failure. (laughs) Oh, well... Never too late. Eh. (laughs) You want to talk about a comic book? Sure. Corey, what do you think of this comic book? Well, it did have Mandrill in it. So there's Mm -hmm. that. I feel like I'm a little bit sad. There was a note in there that this is Hannigan's last uh, go of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess he went out on a bang. In the sense that Mandrill's mom shot him. A literal bang of a shotgun, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. It felt, I guess, anticlimactic somehow. 
Yeah, I can see that. We've had some pretty high highs in the last few issues. I think the end of Hannigan's run has been uncharacteristically good. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. And yeah, overall, there were things that I liked in this issue. I liked specifically that Mandra was dead. And I like, frankly, that it is the end of Ed Hannigan's run. But overall, I wasn't blown away by the issue. It was fine. There was a lot of shit that I had pretty big problems with that happened. And yeah, like you said, I was expecting a little more from it, and it felt a little bit anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. I guess we did learn that if you work in a nuclear experimental place, you need to wear coveralls, otherwise you might have mandrill children. Yeah, I mean, safety first. Did we know that that was his, I guess, origin? Uh, sort of. I mean, I don't know if we specifically knew. I did because I looked it up, but it had been pre-established in his early appearances in uh, Shanna the She-Devil and Daredevil that that was a part of his origin, that mm. he was born a mutant because his father worked in a nuclear test facility and was exposed to radiation. Okay. Yeah, it was the first I remembered hearing about it, and I was like, oh, okay. I mean, there were definitely aspects of his origin that get retconned in this issue, and that have been since he's been appearing in The Defenders, but I don't think that was part of it. Mm. Honestly, the whole thing with the coveralls, my suspicion was, and I don't know this for sure because I don't know what writing method they were using, if it was the more Marvel method where the artist will sketch most of it and then the writer will come back and fill in the dialogue or if Hannigan liked to work with a full script. But uh, my suspicion is, honestly, Don Perlin didn't want to draw the mandrel face and so <laughs> put him in a hazmat suit that covered up his head for as much of the issue as he could. It's like, oh, well, it's in a nuclear facility, so uh, yeah, let's just cover that shit up. Because Don Perlin is a really good artist he doesn't do, specifically in this issue, a great job with Mandrill's face. Maybe he was just over it. Maybe he just kind of forgot. Maybe it's an issue of uh, Pablo Marcos not being as comfortable inking it. But Mandrill looks off in this issue when he doesn't have his face covered up. Yeah, I thought it was funny, too, that they had like color-coded radiation suits where he just was the only one that had a green suit and everybody else had a different color suit. I wonder if, honestly, that's uh, something that they did in the reprint, because in mine, everyone is wearing a gray suit. Oh, oh, no, you're right. It is green. It is a subtle difference, but yeah, his is a drab olive green. Everyone else's is gray. Yeah. Oh, no. You, I guess if you're that much used to being in charge, you're like, yeah, of course I want to stand out so everybody knows I'm the boss. But from a just doing a crime perspective i don't know it seems better to wear the same suit as all your underlings yeah it's like that battlefield thing of like whoa do we have to give the general the big hat seems like a mistake right how did you feel about the mandrill's death well like you i guess i was pleased overall with the development because he's pretty awful and i get that it's supposed to be this thing where his mom's like okay I knew since the beginning that he was going to be evil and do all this bad stuff, which is why I 
told his dad to leave him in the desert to die, and now I have to kill him because he's my kid and it's my responsibility. But it just came off feeling pretty weird. It came off super weird, and there's really, I don't think, a good way to read it. I read it initially as they're doing like a Lady Macbeth type thing with her, where they're trying to forgive the father's action, who's previously he had been portrayed as a very unsympathetic character, who his son was born looking different, and in the very early appearances, there were huge, really problematic racial implications with it. So he decides to go leave his kid out in the desert to die when he was 10 years old. In this, they're retconning it so that, oh, well, yeah, he did that, but he didn't really want to. Uh, It was the mother that really wanted to kill the child, which, I don't know, I don't like this Steinbecking of the origin to like, oh, no, it was a well-intentioned man brought low by his love for an evil woman. And then they have her give the justification oh, I always knew he was going to turn out evil, so that's why I convinced my husband to leave him in the desert. That is a huge retconning of her motivation, because unless she is a psychic and we don't know about that, she has no way of knowing that he would turn out evil, and arguably he wouldn't have turned out evil if she hadn't left him out in the desert to die when he was 10 years old. He didn't have any powers at that point. He was just a kid who looked different. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, because she kind of implies that she knew he was going to have some superpowers. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe like he was pheromoning her. But then I think with his character, that's not something that happened until he grew up and they left him in the desert when he was a kid. So, yeah, no powers. Yeah, it just seems really sad and pathetic. And I mean, in the true sense of in terms of creating pathos for a character who had previously been fairly irredeemable. And in this, you get that he kind of wants to earn his mother's love. He definitely wants to kill his dad, but he didn't know that his mom was behind wanting to murder him when he was 10 and succeeding with that plan 20 years after the fact. It's just weird and uncomfortable. And frankly, it's also uncomfortable that he uses his pheromone powers to control his mom. Like, just that it's with pheromones, which have been so coded as, like, a sexual thing, that it was really, really creepy when he, like, decided that he's going to have his mom be the queen and rule beside him and Mm. kill his dad. I mean, so overtly Oedipal there. And then folding in the, no, his mom always hated him. There's just so much going on and, and ain't none of it good. Leaves you feeling, I don't know, a little gross. Yeah. I also wondered, you you watched the Jessica Jones series, right? Not all of it, um, but I did watch a lot of it. Okay, did you get to the stuff with the Purple Man's parents? No. Because it really closely mirrors a lot that's going on in this with Mandrill, Hmm. where that's a huge part of his motivation, is wanting to both punish and destroy his parents, and also make them love him and them trying to do him in, ultimately. And I wonder how much of that was actually inspired by this run, where you also have the Patsy Walker character, or as she's called in that series, Trish Walker. You have her origin coming from the version of this where 
She asked a controlling showbiz mom who fictionalized her early childhood. I wonder how much of that series was inspired by specifically Ed Hannigan's run of Defenders. Oh, yeah. Good point. A lot of parallels there that I didn't pick up on. It. Yeah, and, and Daredevil's reaction after Mantrell's mom murders him is just kind of, well, I guess he's your son, so you can kill him if you want to. It just kind of takes the gun away from her and is like, yeah, well, you know, you did, you bring up the point that you did give him life, so I guess it is your responsibility to kill him. It's like, that's not the way that works. He's like mildly irritated with himself for not preventing it, though. He's like, <laughs> oh, man, I was thinking about so many other things. But, oh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, better give me that gun, though. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have any other kids in the building. <laughs> And, I mean, you'd be within your rights, but I'd rather if you didn't murder them. Yeah, he's putting a condescending hand on her shoulder while he takes the gun. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you, you bring up the condescending tone, and I feel like this issue in general has kind of a condescending tone that it takes towards women in general and counterculture women in specific that I found kind of unsettling and it's one that you see crops up in comic books a lot where it's just kind of implying that if you would like to fight injustice you are probably being duped by someone maybe a supervillain. It, mm. it's something that comes up a lot a lot of times it comes up in terms of people are upset about racism and it turns out their anger is being manipulated by a often foreign agent who, who seeks to profit from it. And you see that kind of implied about a bunch of different characters in this book. Like, the protesters outside the nuclear power plant, well, they're just uh, dupes waiting to happen. Like, the mandrel's gonna take advantage of them, and specifically the fact that they're women. Also, the judge in the courtroom, the fact that she's a woman, oh, that's just a ticking time bomb because, uh, you know, Mandrill's going to use his powers to manipulate her because he can manipulate women. There's, mm -hmm. I mean, there's that inherent misogyny to his powers, which is one of the many reasons that I'm glad he's dead. But you also see it crop up with Femforce, where in the opening pages, it definitely comes off as counterculture. I'm not sure if it's supposed to come off as feminist. When they call the cop the pig, I'm not sure if they're calling him, like, a chauvinist pig or in the derogatory sense that they would be addressing him as a police officer. Mm -hmm. But it does come across as, like, that it's trying to highlight the irony of these women who are overtly feminist secretly being manipulated by a powerful man. You know, mm -hmm. with the don't look at me that way, pig. The judge is one of us. Now she's going to let us free as soon as she deals with this turkey. You'll see. Like, it seems like it's making fun of feminism in an underhanded way there. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated, right? Because at first reading, you could read it charitably. Like, she's rebuking this guy for being a creep, mm -hmm. rejecting the male gaze and such. But. Yeah, with the subtext of, like, well, she doesn't have her own free will, though, so that's... Right. She she is overtly calling another male master at this mm -hmm. point. So, yeah, I don't know, it's just kind of uncomfortable. The other thing that was 
I think maybe behind Daredevil's condescension, other than just generalized misogyny and patriarchy, uh, is the fact that probably, yeah, he feels a little bit sheepish about the fact that he was listening to the Hulk's heartbeat from half a room away and a middle-aged lady with a shotgun snuck up right behind him. <laughs> You'd think you would notice. Yeah. But, you know, there was some radiation in the room, so what are you going to do? Yeah, well, it's just it's that old thing, you know, multitasking is just not <laughs> possible. I know people <laughs> made a big deal about it, but uh, yeah. it's just really not an effective way to get things done. Somebody's going to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> you worked in a kitchen, Corey. There's a lot of multitasking you have to do. How many people got shot while you were working in the kitchen? Oh, gosh, I, like in the kitchen or in the surrounding area? Oh, okay, well, let's expand it. Let's go with the surrounding area. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't know. I mean, things happen. Do you think they wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been multitasking? Oh, no, I'm just saying, like, for superheroes, that's probably a thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, in the kitchen, it's okay, because that's like the job, right? You have to have a sense of how to time things. But I mean, like, you can't listen to Hulk's heartbeat and uh, get irradiated and not prevent Mandrill from getting shot. No, no, I I hear you, man. I know when I was working in a kitchen, we lost a lot of bussers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a dangerous job, man. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know what I do love about that that panel, though, is that she calls, we don't, I think, get her name, but she calls Kyle a turkey. And that is just one of my favorite things to call somebody that you don't like. Yeah. I assume she's referring to Kyle. Yeah, I think that's usually a fair assumption. It's especially good when people call Kyle a turkey because he is bird-themed. Mm-hmm. So it's extra appropriate. Yeah. Back to the radiation-filled room that Mandrill's mom snuck up on Daredevil in. Our they just gonna die now, Kyle and Daredevil? Because they're in the middle room of a nuclear reactor where apparently Mandrill's dad is gonna die because he took off his hat for a few minutes of his hazmat suit. Kyle and Daredevil are like, well, if we stand over here like a good 10 feet away from the radiation, we'll probably be fine. Yeah, I had the, I had the same concern of, well, I guess Daredevil's abilities and Kyle's wealth somehow protect them from carcinogens? I don't know. Maybe they just have fancy suits, although we saw before that Kyle was susceptible to radiation poisoning when they were in Russia. Like, they all were. Mm. Yeah, they almost died from the radiation poisoning that uh, codename Fuckwit put them through. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe they built up an effective immunity to radiation over the years, because that is ridiculous, but I was willing to buy that about the Hulk, so I'll, I guess I'll extend that to Daredevil and uh, Nighthawk. I like that Hulk's just sheer force of will is enough to combat the effects of radiation, too. Yeah, that's how it works. Okay. Um, really, force of will, especially in comic books, can pretty much do anything. You know, if you concentrate hard enough. You can fight radiation, you can overcome mental illness, really, just, you know, whatever they got. Solve that last uh, part of a crossword puzzle? Oh no, it still can't do that. Oh, 
man, that is so frustrating <laughs> when you just have one word left. For years, I was in awe of my grandfather's ability to solve the New York Times crossword puzzle. He would do it in record time, and he would do it consistently every week. And you, you knew my grandfather. He really was. He, he was the most intelligent man I've ever met, with the exception of my mom. He's probably the smartest person I've ever met. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until years of me being in awe of his crossword ability that I started looking at some of the crossword things. When he got close to the end, if he didn't know a word, he'd just fill in random letters. <laughs> oh, that's the trick. And be completely satisfied with it. I am so envious of that. Oh, man. Yeah, me too. Were you as impressed as I was with the Hulk's ability to just take a bite out of a turkey like it was an apple? You know I was. <laughs> I stared at that for a while, too, because I was having that. I was like, wait, is that the back part where there's not much meat? Or is that the front part where the there's more meat? I think it was a little bit offset. I think he was getting mostly the breast there. But yeah, no, I was thinking like about that ridge of bone that runs down the middle of it, too. I know, he's like, man, he's just, well, he's the Hulk. I guess he can just bite right through that stuff. But. Oh, yeah, but I mean, I know he's the Hulk, but I gotta suspect that it's like, like with dogs, like, you can't give him turkey bones. <laughs> you can give him beef, but he can't do turkey or pork bones. That's <laughs> all just extra collagen for him. I also was impressed with Dolly Donahue for apparently making not just a whole roast turkey, but also a whole roast ham that you see in the fridge to just have as leftovers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. She's a, a heck of a, what's her job? Is, it, is she a housekeeper? Is that her? Housekeeper, yeah. And she's so annoyed, too. <laughs> like, Hulk opens the fridge and she's just glaring at him. She's like, ah, finally got rid of all those beans and now this asshole's going to eat my turkey. <laughs> what was she making the turkey for? Like, the idea that you would just make a turkey and then put it in the fridge without having it as a turkey dinner is so wild to me. Like, I'm not opposed to the idea. Like, leftovers are kind of the best part of Thanksgiving. But I'm still kind of flabbergasted by it. Well, she's got all these people crashing at the house, and so it's probably like an economy of scale thing, right? Or like, well, I made, okay. I'm going to make a turkey, but um, might as well make a few. Oh, you think there's multiple turkeys in there? Well, no, I just think she made two, because she's got like a, maybe just a double oven. And the ham's got to cook at a different temperature, so that has to be part of a different batch. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's just one of those canned ones you just need to heat up. Oh, but she just took it out of the can and put it in the fridge uncovered? Well, I guess we deduct some good housekeeping points for doing that. It's going to smell like onions or whatever else you got in there. Yeah, unless she keeps like that open baking soda, like maybe a couple of things of that in there. Hmm. My opinion of Dolly Donahue is just on a roller coaster right now. <laughs> I think she's all right. Yeah, I do too. You know what else I think is all right? Hmm. Whoa. Corey, you gotta stop that echolocation thing. <laughs> it's I didn't realize my phone was hooked up to this other speaker. It's so loud. <laughs> <laughs> You're just showing bats and dolphins where to find you. Is that what you want? I no.
Well, the reason I was blowing my air horn and you were showing bats and dolphins your location is because there are rather a lot of picket signs in this issue. There are people protesting outside of the nuclear power plant, which, uh, I don't know, took me back to people protesting the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I think my parents did that. I remember being so scared of that, like not even really knowing where Seabrook was in relation to the town I grew up in, but still just being super freaked out. Yeah, me too. Did you have a favorite picket sign that you saw? Yeah, I like the sign that says, we don't need no radiation, which made me wonder if like the Vera Gemini thing, like if Hannigan's sneaking in a, a Pink Floyd reference. I would almost guarantee that he is. I mean, that's just such specific phrasing. Yeah, I liked that one pretty well. I think my favorite, just given the context of the protest, is just the sign that says, get out! (laughs) (laughs) Like, get out, like, of the nuclear power plant? Just, like, abandon it? That's not safe. What? Who are you talking to when you're just saying, get out? I I like that. It's, It's, like, extremely actionable but super vague at the same time it's an all-purpose protest sign i feel like you can bring that to any protest Mm -hmm. just it's like having a sign that just says go away yeah you just you just point it at whoever's bugging you yeah or like when i went to that baseball game and i had the sign that said i like baseball Mm -hmm. like you could bring that to any baseball game doesn't matter who's playing Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think no. that's the protest equivalent of that sign, and, and I appreciated that. What did you think the Mandrel's plan was? Because I was trying to make some sense of it, and falling, I think, a little bit short. So, yeah, initially, you're like, clearly the bad guy thing to do is to blow up or threaten to blow up for some kind of return, the nuclear plant. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just another one of these you know, needlessly complicated things where he's like, well, I want to kill my dad and he works at the nuclear plant. Oh, I know, you know, I'll go there and I'll make him take his coveralls off and let him get irradiated while I stand there and watch. Yeah. And then, but I mean, see, once he does that, like once he sets the plan in motion to destroy the nuclear power plant, exposing his dad to the radiation, it didn't seem like he had a way to turn it off at that point or to get out of there, and that negates the rest of his plan, which was to somehow use the protesters outside as hostages, because some of them were female, and so then they would be willing hostages. I couldn't quite figure... So, did he just want to take the power plant hostage? But once you blow it up, you can't do that anymore. No, I think it was like one of those implied things. So he's a super villain, and so he's going to call the cops or whoever and just be like, hey, I'm going to um, blow up the power plant with all these hostages in it if you don't give me control over New York City. Huh. Okay. I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. The part where he compromises the nuclear power plant and then tries to stop the Hulk from making it not blow up was really confusing to me, though. I mean, 
I don't want to give the Mandrill too many notes here, but there's got to be easier ways to kill your dad. Yeah, he's really kind of all over the place in this one. Yeah, you know, until he's all over the floor because his mom shot him. And he stays dead for the most part for, I mean, not forever, but for comic books, he stays dead for a solid, like, 30 years, which is pretty good. It's a good run of being dead. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not the record. (laughs) Nope. I mean, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but I'm sure somebody's been dead longer than 30 years. That's it's an honorable mention. Yeah, I think Ramses the second might just edge him out. Oh, you know what? Forgot about Ramses the first. Still, 30 years. Pretty good. It does go back to making me wonder to what extent the inclusion and then destruction of the mandrel in the Defenders specifically is part of the whole Operation Break Steve Gerber's Toys. You know? Mm. Like, there was a run there where for a solid, like, four arcs in a row, it was, hey, let's bring back this Gerber creation, and then let's either kill the character or break it in some other way. And I wonder if this is another example of that. What did you think of the artwork in this issue in general? We talked about the Mandrill's appearance being a little bit inconsistent. But other than that, what what were your thoughts? Gosh, it felt a little... Maybe just because there was so much detail, and perhaps it's the, the copy that I have, but a little... Like, I had a sketchier quality to it than I'm hmm. used to. Is there a specific instance of that, or just in general? Um, the most specific one, and, and understandably it's because there's a ton of people in it, is, is the protest scene with the buses and all the picket signs on page 7. Yeah, there were definitely some scenes that were like that. I think the contrast is maybe more stark because it opens with two pages that are done with very clear lines and a lot of detail. And honestly, I like those pages. I think they're beautifully illustrated. But they had kind of a static quality. Like, they seemed more like book illustrations than comic book panels. I'm talking about the first page with Nighthawk yelling no as the other defenders are around him. And then the second page, that's the courtroom scene. Like, the courtroom scene, there's a lot of things happening in it. But there really isn't a sense of movement. It almost looks like... I don't know, like a Hogarth painting or something, you know? Yeah. That said, I love Daredevil and Hulk as Nighthawk is shaking his fist at the judge. They both look like they're just, Hulk's just like, what the fuck is he doing? And Daredevil's (laughs) just like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. When the Hulk is alarmed by your lack of tact, that's not a good sign. It's not a good look, man. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, I was struck by that scene and by Nighthawk's reaction to the judge's edict in general. Like, I get that, yes, he knows she's under the mantrail's sway, but I feel like he would have reacted that way to any decision that she handed down regardless, just by flying off and being like, yeah, I don't feel like doing that, so I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And you see... Daredevil follows him and chooses to do the same, but he tries to make the excuse of, oh, don't worry, I'll go, uh, I'll go grab him and bring him back. Yeah, I, that was very clever of him. It didn't work, but I still liked it. And also, you see that he did that 
with the knowledge that there would be consequences to what he was doing, which I think makes a big difference. Like, Kyle's action is carried out with petulant arrogance, and Daredevil's is, well, shit, this is bad and there will be consequences, but it's what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And even though they're doing essentially the same thing, I had so much more sympathy for Daredevil. And then I just loved the Hulk and Patsy. Patsy using the Hulk as an excuse and the Hulk just being like, yeah, well, I'm out of here. I loved how they were all just like, well, we're all just going to ignore what the judge said, but we all have different excuses for it. And then they meet outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a little concerned with, you know, Hulk's typical, like, I'm just going to jump through the roof, but he's holding Patsy. So I guess he must have sheltered her from the concrete and rebar and everything that he destroyed on his way out. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> Otherwise, she's going to have a concussion or something. Yeah, I mean, it seems like she could have just teleported out with the Shadow Cloak, but in this issue, it seems like the Shadow Cloak maybe doesn't teleport anymore. I think she just forgets she's wearing it sometimes. She definitely seems to have less control over it. Like, she can still use it as, like, a prehensile fabric. And she can still pull weapons out of it, but she can't really anymore control which weapons she pulls out of it. And like I said, it doesn't seem like she could teleport with it anymore. And I think that is probably just a matter of kind of lazy writing. But I mean, there's an explanation for that that's just sitting there that I wish they had introduced like a line of internal dialogue to completely explain it away because... She no longer has her telepathic powers that used to enable her to use the cloak more effectively because Moondragon swiped him out of her brain before she fucked off back to space. You could just have her say that. And I think that would have helped things a lot. Yeah, but I mean, there's no room for that. <laughs> okay. There's just dialogue everywhere already. There are so many words in this comic book. That is a fair point. Yeah, it is definitely a word-bubble-rich environment in these pages. That being said, I did really like the fight between Patsy and Valkyrie. That was one of the few things that I thought was done really well in this issue. Valkyrie in general, I thought, was handled pretty well in this issue. I mean, I wish she wasn't being mind-controlled by the mantrel in it, but the internal struggle and the struggle of her character where her sorceress nature forbids her from harming another woman, but she is being mind-controlled and being forced to do that. So she's put in this no-win situation, and you can see from the artwork how she is struggling against that. And also, you see the dialogue established that Kyle at least nominally recognizes that she is incredibly powerful, not just physically in terms of strength, but also in terms of battle sense and strategy and i don't know it's nice to see that acknowledged i wish the story acknowledged it with more than words more often but it's nice to at least see it acknowledged with words if nothing else yeah i mean it's it's a stronger endorsement of her abilities than we usually get for sure basically mm -hmm. it says you know hey other than the hulk she's the most powerful and she's got the most fighting experience Oh, shit. And with her on the mandrel side, we are totally fucked. Mm -hmm. Which is nice. I mean, it turns out to not be at all true, but still. I also liked the moment with Patsy and Valkyrie at the end where 
you know, they have a nice hug after she breaks the mandrel's hold over her. Or possibly that's because the mandrel's dead now. It's tough to tell. The way that I read it was like it was just a short circuit of her. I, I can't hurt women and uh, I'm being compelled to hurt a woman. Mm-hmm. And Patsy just kind of pushed that to the brink. Yeah, she's like shorted out. I mean, it seems like an unpleasant way to counteract that effect, but maybe less unpleasant than having an electrical shock delivered to you every second. Patsy was pretty chill about that. I was wondering, like, I was like, wait, so how bad is it? Is it like one of those dog collars? That's, or is it like an actual, like almost a taser? Like she's being pretty cool about it. The fact that she's able to fight while she is getting sporadically shocked by a bracelet every set. Well, I guess not sporadically because it is every second or so, which Kyle's very cavalier about. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's not a good reflection on Kyle. If it is a very mild shock that she's able to just more or less ignore, then it makes it so much worse that he threw her into a downed power line in the last issue. You know, if all that is needed is just like, here, like a battery. Right. Yeah, I was. I got to say, you know, though I was disappointed she has to get shocked every second. I was relieved. Like, I was like, oh, God, what is he going to do this time? Yeah, he's going to go too far. I liked that Patsy tried to free some of the other members of Femforce with the electrical shocks during the battle. But the one woman who did get freed really did just underline how little thought has been given to the other women that have been under Mandrill's control and what an awful situation they've been put in and just how horrific that whole situation is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like they've just, depending on how long they've been under his control, just have this giant gap in their lives. Yeah, it's such a fucked up power that he has. I'm so glad that he's dead. (laughs) For 30 years. Yeah. He might be dead again. I'm not entirely sure. I'm pretty sure he was dead until like 2011, and then he was a minor villain in a few stories. But as shitty as his power is, it was especially a shitty time frame for him to have that power, because essentially his power is the ability to rob women of their agency. And he lived in Bronze Age comic books. So what agency? (laughs) It's like, is his secondary power the ability to eat politicians' integrity? <laughs> but he's dead. Hooray! Hey. You ready to get into the minutiae? You bet. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, uh, for the first category, this is a little more straightforward than we often go with this one. But behold or be gone, Ed Hannigan's run on the Defenders. It comes to its conclusion in this issue. Overall, how do you feel about it? It's a 20-some-odd issue run, really about the same length as Steve Gerber's and David Anthony Kraft's previous runs on the title. Had some highs? Definitely had some lows. Overall, are you glad it's there or not? Behold or be gone? And if the answer is be gone, what writer would you have had replace him on this run? Oh, man, that's tough because with the tenures being so long, they do 
kind of blend together a little bit. That said, I feel like over the past 20 or so issues, there's probably been a few more things that has seemed problematic or troubling in the storytelling. So I think I'd say be gone and maybe uh, bring back some of the, the, a little bit more of, I guess, like the silliness of uh, Steve Gerber. Okay, so you would give Gerber another run on the title. Yeah, I think so. That's an interesting choice. I'm really torn about this. I think, honestly, really on the strength of issue 89, which I loved so much, I think it's maybe my favorite Defenders issue, I have to give it a marginal behold. Um, The beans. Yeah, all those beans. And the whole thing with Montclair, New Jersey, the elegant retcon of Patsy's childhood. I think those things are, and the Prince of Wales story, there were just a couple of things towards the end of the run that really snatch it from the jaws of defeat. It's tough because it also is, by and large, my least favorite writer's run on the title. But the good bits, I think I'm happy enough that they're there that I don't really want to switch it out. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it would be... A more definitive behold if it had been a few years earlier, because, you know, you get that whole uh, butterfly effect. Fortunately, I was already born at this point, so I can't wipe out my own existence by erasing this run, which is nice because, you know, time travel. Mm -hmm. Paradox. So, I mean, overall, I don't think that Ed Hannigan's run on the Defenders is foundational to our timeline, but... Even if it was, the way things are going lately, yeah, I'm okay with uh, stomping on some butterflies and seeing what uh, what happens. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, I don't want to get rid of the Hulk eating all those beans. So it's a behold for me. If it were a begone, different authors I would like to bring in. I would love to see what a Roger Stern extended run on the Defenders would have looked like. I think he deals with smaller superhero stories and more grounded ones in a really interesting way. I would like to see what uh, the author Isabel Allende would do on this title. She did a great Buildings Roman version of Zorro, and uh, I think bringing some uh, magical realism to a superhero story would be an interesting choice. Maybe Douglas Adams, I think, could do an interesting Defenders run. I don't know how he'd be on deadlines, and maybe he would suck at writing comics. It's not always a easy transition from one medium of writing to another but uh yeah overall i'm gonna stick with hannigan i think oh man i was just going through the back catalog of the defenders is my well to draw upon for who who i might replace him with well if if you're going a larger universe anybody off the top of your head come to mind gosh maybe uh gosh what's his first name is it james gunn the guy that wrote the toy collector yeah, yeah, it's funny. I think we're probably the only people in the universe that think of James Gunn as the guy who wrote The Toy Collector. Oh, yeah. And not I, the sorry, guy who directed sorry. Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think everybody else thinks of him as the guy who wrote the live-action Scooby-Doo movie. You're right. That's how most people think of him. Yeah. I mean, some people still think of him as the guy who wrote Tromeo and Juliet. But wait, did he? Yes. Oh, jeez, man, what a storied career. 
Yeah, I think he might have done an interesting job on the Defenders. He would have been a baby back then, I'm pretty sure. So maybe uh, not as good. Certainly would have been some spelling issues, I'd imagine. Well, Jim Shooter would have taken care of that. <laughs> he might have been the age that Jim Shooter was when he started writing comics. He he had his first published work when Wait, he was he like... he started as a baby? Well, he was like 12 or 13. Practically oh a baby. Wow. I mean, as a baby, he was probably the size of a full-grown man. He's very large. I didn't know that. Yeah. A literal giant among men. Hmm. Maybe not a literal giant, but he's pretty big. A literary giant? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like we've got one be gone with a bring back Steve Gerber or possibly baby James Gunn and one behold. Because the Hulk's gotta eat them beans. Yeah, shit. I feel bad now. I forgot about that issue. That was a lot of fun. I mean, you do have to weigh that against the interminable Tunnel World saga with all of its fucking thinly veiled Anne Rand references. God, I hated that. Something yesterday or like the other day made me think I was driving somewhere and I was like, fucking you titanidian. What the hell? Well, speaking of things that Ed Hannigan has written, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? I think I've heard this said maybe by Patsy once or twice in the past, but the phrase madder than a wet hen is just so evocative. It really cracks me up when I hear it. I've always enjoyed that as a phrase, yes. I can't remember if we've heard Patsy say it, but I think it's the sort of thing that I might have heard my grandmother say. Yeah, it's it's just so funny to me to, to think of a <laughs> angry wet hen. Having grown up around chickens, they're they're pretty funny birds, just naturally, and imagining one all angry and wet at the same time just really ratchets up the, the comedy. Yes, you've long been advocating for a chicken prank show. Have I? Oh, you don't remember. Maybe a mutant baboon was controlling you with their pheromones. No, it's like I made a bad water reference and got. Oh, right, right, right. And you let uh let the fresh maker have access to your head because uh-huh. of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I really do like the phrase "matter than a wet head." Like I said, I'm pretty sure I've heard my grandmother say that at least once. Not my favorite of her colloquialisms. That would be uh, the way that she used to threaten my mother with a spanking was, I'll turn you over my checkered apron and put the rapsy dazzles back on your star-spangled banner. Oh, that's so cute and so threatening at the same time. (laughs) Yes, just a charming and patriotic ode to corporal punishment. Mm. But my grandmother sadly did not appear in this issue, so I think my favorite words come from Daredevil on page 7 when he radios presumably Nighthawk if I'm able to crack this clever CB code that he uses and when he says this is Red Devil to Bird's Nest I'm at the monkey house yep that elicited a guffaw from me as well I'm pretty sure he was just really into like CB radios at that point because There's no reason for them to try to maintain anonymity, and neither he or Nighthawk has ever made any nods to doing so in the past. 
They're both terrible at maintaining secret identities, so I'm pretty sure they were doing that just for fun because maybe they had watched Convoy recently. I'm sure they were just doing that for fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know Convoy was directed by Sam Peckinpah? I am not familiar with Convoy. Ah, it is a Chris Christofferson and Polly from the Rocky movies trucker film. Oh, interesting. Mm. I think actually the movie was based on the song Convoy. Oh, that seems unusual. You'd think. There have been more movies based on songs than you might imagine. The one I always think of first is that they made a movie out of the song Big Bad John, starring the song's writer and sausage magnate Jimmy Dean. But they also made like a series of five movies based on The Gambler. Wow. If you were going to uh, base a movie on a song, what would you uh, pick? Ooh. Um... Gosh, I see the first two that run to mind are songs that are from soundtracks. So it's like, oh, I would base it on <laughs> the fish that saved Pittsburgh. Oh, no, they already did that. They yeah, there is a movie called that. And then hit them high from Space Jam. Um, let's see. Gosh, I'm coming up blank. How about you? Oh, I wasn't expecting you to direct the question back at me. Fuck. I don't know. Um, protect your neck. Yeah, that would be a fun. I would totally watch a Wu-Tang action movie. As a matter of fact, I did. We watched it together. The man with the uh, iron fists. Was that uh, it? Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, I would totally watch a Wu-Tang movie called Protect Your Neck, where maybe they're all vampire hunters. That'd be pretty good. Uh, I guess, I don't know, I'm just looking at a Run DMC trading card that I have on my desk. I think uh, maybe Ragtime by Run DMC, because that already tells a story of... Uh, run going to the bank and uh making a rhyme so good that they all gave him all of their money Ooh, now there's a caper indeed Ooh, i do love a heist movie so yeah i would do ragtime by run dmc any other pies not made out of steel in this issue there is one other thing that the writing didn't blow me away but it just really cracked me up and it's on page four when kyle and daredevil are standing on the roof after leaving the courtroom and Kyle's just editorializing about them, like in a way that if I was Daredevil, I'd be like, ah, I, don't, I don't really care for your characterization. And he's saying, well, we, on the other hand, are scattered, confused, and on the run from the authorities. Yeah, that definitely does have that feel like, huh, look at the two of us, a pair of stupid, fat idiots. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Hey, if you want to be self-deprecating, I've got issues with that, but go ahead. But you don't get to be me deprecating as part of your self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most worthy of note in this issue? You know, I did find myself wondering if Mandrill's mom is um, Velma, like a grown-up version of Velma Dinkley from, speaking of uh, James Gunn, <laughs> of Scooby-Doo mm -hmm. fame. I totally get where you're coming from. Her outfit was very reminiscent of that. The orange dress and the thick glasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, she definitely has a different haircut. And she put a green, like, I don't know, boat length jacket over it. I don't know what you call that kind of jacket. Oh, that's no, that's, that's what they call it. You go to Nordstrom and be like, hey, where are your butt length jackets? <laughs> oh, okay. I assumed as much. And you see that 
when Patsy tackles her, she is wearing some kind of a slip under her dress, it looks like. There's a, a lace frilly bit that's coming out from under her skirt. But yeah, it definitely got, got some pretty, uh, pretty strong Velma vibes. Mm-hmm. That was the one that I noted, too. Was there any other fashion you wanted to talk about? We already kind of talked about it, but I just thought it was dumb that Mandrill decided he needed a special radiation suit so he could stand out from his underlings. Yeah, I think that was a pretty dumb call, especially because he's already going to stand out a little bit because his helmet has got to be bigger than theirs. And his gloves you see in a couple of scenes are also just huge. Mm -hmm. And he just smells horribly of monkey stink all the time. Mm. Axe. Worse than Axe? Is that possible? Mandrel flavor of Axe. Oh, God, they probably do have one. With real pheromones. Oh, God, I gotta, I feel bad for Daredevil, man. The <laughs> fact that he tracked Mandrel all the way across town with his super senses just smelling that, like, Axe body spray monkey house smell <laughs> all the way to the nuclear power plant. Ah, oh, poor fella. Just muttering to himself and smell as particulate. <laughs> who did you have as the best defender and who did you have as the worst offender in this? For worst, my notes say Kyle because he does nothing but fly around. I don't know, maybe he had some more valuable contributions than that, but I don't really feel like he accomplished much. No, he did some bad Hulk management. I mean, it was, I think, his idea to put the Hulk in charge of crowd control, which, I mean, it's the one communication-based job in this little caper that they're doing, and you're like, ah, oh, you know who uh, who needs to work with this crowd of people? The Hulk. And then tries to pull him off, and yeah, the Hulk's very good-natured about it, but yeah, I agree. Kyle did a very bad job. He did that. He also decided to shock Patsy every second with that collar, which seems overkill and also like it would really distract her during the fighting. I agree that overall he did a pretty bad job. I don't think he necessarily did the worst job, because something that came up in the letter column reminded me of an event that had been set in motion that I think is the key to my choice of this issue's worst offender. Because my choice is Jack Norris. <laughs> okay. Four issues ago, he set out to warn the defenders about a shadowy government agency that was holding secret trials about them. He started off in New York. He has about a year, probably, of secret agent training. And in that time, he has not located the defenders <laughs> to warn them. <laughs> Despite the fact that many of them are listed in the phone book. Man, that's a fair point. I am intrigued by the creative freedom that you're taking to do a, a kind of a retroactive worst. Well, thank you. It's just that I, I think until this point, I holding out hope is definitely the wrong way to phrase this, but I thought that maybe he would be coming back rather than just have that be a totally dropped plot line. But with Hannigan leaving the title at this point, it just seems pretty clear that Jack Norris just wandered off and forgot to tell the Defenders, or will never find them to warn them. Yeah, fair point. I'm not going to argue uh, <laughs> Norris being the worst. Conversely, who did you have as the best Defender? 
Oh man, because she saves so many of the Femforce brainwashed people, because she saves or at least uh, outlasts Val in the battle, I went with uh, Patsy, and because she used the phrase madder than a wet end. Those are all solid points in her favor. I had her in very strong contention. I think that Hellcat did a great job, and she was my initial choice until I started thinking about how much restraint the Hulk showed really uncharacteristically at every turn in this book. Like, dealing with Kyle's bullshit, holding his shit together through force of sheer willpower, as we mentioned earlier, long enough to move all of those carbon rods and keep essentially the entire eastern seaboard from exploding into a nuclear disaster. Uh, Yeah, I had to go with the Hulk. Yeah, yeah, good call. I I definitely had him down there, too. I mean, he had the biggest impact on the outcome. Mm I feel like it's of the story, and that, as you pointed out, he stopped the meltdown. Also, he did eat a turkey like an apple. Well, I think he was holding it with both hands, though. You don't eat an apple like that. Oh, that's true. There was a comic book that, I think I was, when I was crashing on your couch for a while, it was in your bathroom for a while, but there was an issue of Mystery Men that had a story in it that was a prose story where a character is described as walking down the street eating a steak like a candy bar and a baked potato like an apple. And I think of that at least once a week. You used to mention that a lot, especially when you had been drinking. Can you imagine, though? Usually in the context of, I'm a grown man. I could do that right now if I wanted to. It's true. I never did, though. Mm. Have you ever eaten a steak like a candy bar while walking down the street? No, I, to me that seems wrong somehow like you just it wouldn't be as good and it would be like a waste of that experience and that animal protein yeah i haven't eaten any red meat for like five or six years now you know what i mean like the muscle meats from those large animals are pretty inefficient to produce and so like if i'm gonna consume one i want it to be feel a little bit special i think that would feel pretty special i don't think it would taste as good really yeah Because you just would have to, like, rip a bite off of it. I mean, maybe if it was, like, a brisket that had been barbecued and was, like, easy to chew, (laughs) it would work. But I don't know. I think a steak is, like, a fork and a knife thing for me. Okay. Well, I won't be able to live vicariously through you. Listeners, if any of you have ever walked down the street eating a steak like a candy bar, let me know how it worked out for you. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? There's three of them that all, I felt like, went together. I think they were all sword noises. I know the ones you're talking about. Spang! Clang! Spack! Those are all good sword fight noises. I think the spang is my favorite, but uh, they're all pretty good. Yep. I was a big fan of the bavoom of the Hulk smashing through a wall. That pleased me greatly. I also was a fan of the smaller moment of Patsy punching a lady in the face and it making the noise, stood. Yeah, that was a funny one. Yeah, like maybe that's uh, the name of a sitcom starring a chud. Stud! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, chud. Always eating humans. Be like perfect strangers, but instead of bulky, you have a chud. (laughs) I would watch the shit out of that show, Corey. 
<laughs> Larry Appleton's constantly terrorized. <laughs> Running away. Just that's all he does. At the end of each episode, they reach a moment of accord because it is his cousin. Uh, <laughs> they try to share a moment and he loses a finger. Mm-hmm. Oh, cousin Larry. Stud. <laughs> Well, Corey, it's time for our weekly Battle of the Band Names. I'm sure it will not surprise you to learn that once again, Get the Squid Drunk emerged victorious, although it was closer than you might think, from their battle with the good time revival rock of Cheshire and her goofs. Were you able to find a band name in this issue that you feel like putting up against Get the Squid Drunk? Yeah, I had three choices, and gosh, I don't know if I feel that strongly about them, so I I hope you came up with some good ones, too. I initially had trouble finding one, and then once I started, I found four of them. Mm. On the more basic side, I had Arrow Shaft, (laughs) which is uh, (laughs) kind of like Aerosmith, but with even more phallic imagery. <laughs> mm. And Shadow Cloak, which I can see that being a, like, math rock high fantasy band, you know? Oh, wow. I wouldn't have put those two together. I was thinking more like a Hawkwind or something. What were your choices? So I had two that I think are both kind of uh, psychedelic music. The first one, which is would be very much like a mid-60s kind of revival band called the strange bunch that's not bad and they're usually their usual openers are are psychedelic also but more like fantasy tinged and they are called dimensional doorway i almost had that as one of my choices but then i was like i bet they sound like the doors fuck those guys (laughs) they're a doors cover band (laughs) exclusively oh I had what I think would be the more garage side of the psychedelic music, which would be psycho-emotional backlash. Oh, wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, I see them sounding kind of like like the Count Five, or like the Moving Sidewalks, but like from that era of music. Nice. And then we have my favorite choice, which I didn't find until last, and I don't quite know what kind of a band they are. I think probably they're they're punk, maybe a little less poppy punk, but they are called basically decent civic-minded folk. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my favorite. How does that abbreviate? B-D-C-M-F. So it's, it could have like a cool abbreviation. Yeah. I had one last choice to, to we didn't have any in common this time, which is interesting. My final one is like a, probably a shoegaze dream pop band called Placid Reactor. Ooh, Placid Reactor is pretty good. Mm. Gosh, I think it probably comes down to those two. Placid Reactor or basically decent civic-minded folk. Let's go with yours on account of the potential for, for an abbreviated name. All right, so uh, I'll, yeah, I'll put up the Twitter poll. It will be Get the Squid Drunk with their ska covers of sea shanties going up against the punk powerhouses, basically decent civic-minded folk. Oof. 
I was just thinking NoFX is going to be like, oh man, they got like two more letters than we do. Yeah! Suck it, Fat Mike. <laughs> what was your favorite panel? I liked page six, Hungry Hulk, which I think you liked too, probably. I did. That was definitely one of my options. And on that same page, the panel following it, I call Jumping Defenders, where they're all taking off and the, the housekeeper is waving goodbye to them. Like, you know, have a nice day solving crimes or going to court or whatever it was. Yeah, I like how surprisingly open-minded Dolly Donahue is about the Defenders. She seems to really be taking a like, ha, these weirdos, whatever, stance mm-hmm. towards them. And yeah, I like that. I like her thought bubble where she's like, they sure are a strange bunch. Wonder what the late Mrs. Walker would have thought of them. It's just a nice moment. Yeah, I liked that panel a lot, too. Uh, my other options were the no, the big, the opening panel. Uh, I just thought that was really fun, where the other defenders are looking at Kyle like, what the fuck is up with this asshole? And it's just really nice, really clean, thin-lined illustration. As I said, it seems a little bit static, but I, I liked it a lot. I love daredevil's face in that he just looks like he really looks like he's just being like oh no (laughs) well he's the lawyer he knows the effect that this is having on the judge and potentially the jury i also really liked the big hug the final panel of just patsy and valkyrie just sharing a moment of vulnerability i thought that was very sweet i like the bond between them And how Patsy is like, you know, I still am dealing with the fact that my mom just died. We had a a tumultuous relationship, but she was my mom. And just hugging Valkyrie, with whom she has just battled. And I thought it was just a really sweet scene and really nicely drawn. Yeah, I like that one too. Now, Corey, as we've discussed, the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules. Mm. Yeah, they were simple in this one. And uh, the Hulk's rules are that sometimes the task that you're less excited about is the one that's for the greater good. Mm. So did he want to go smash Mandrill? Yep. Did he? Nope. He saved the uh, power plant from blowing up. Good for the Hulk. I had the Hulk's rule being you can't retcon shitty behavior into clairvoyance. He learned that from Mandrill's mom, who was trying to play it off like, oh, when I demanded that my weird-looking kid be left out in the desert to die, that was because I must have somehow known he was going to turn out evil. No, you fucking didn't. I know that you didn't, and the Hulk knows that you didn't. And that's the Hulk's rule. Good call. Corey, I got one final question I gotta ask you. Okay. In January of 1981, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Wong was giggling his backside off, watching a bet that he won come to fruition. Ah. So, earlier in the previous year, it just never ceases to amaze me the circles that he runs in and the friends that he has made over the years. And one of his old drinking buddies is Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame. Oh. And they had been hanging out, playing poker and having a few drinks. Douglas Adams had run out of 
things to bet with because Wong was just on a, a winning streak. And he said, all right, if you win this next hand, I'll get naked on television. Just imagine that with a, his accent, right? Mm-hmm. And Wong thought that that was hilarious. And that's why after the premiere of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy, the first TV adaptation on January 5th of 1981 on the BBC2 network, Douglas Adams had a few cameos on the episode. And on episode two, he's the man that walks naked into the ocean. Ah, I did not know that. So uh, Wong was giggling that he made good on that bet. Well, I'm glad Wong had some good times in January of 1981, because it was also a month that saw a fair amount of frustration on his part. And that came about in a couple of different ways. Probably surprising no one, both owed in some part to Dr. Stephen Strange. See, Wong was a early convert to the extreme sport of base jumping. <laughs> and that is a acronym consisting of building, antenna, span, and earth. The four things that you could jump off of in this. Uh, buildings and antennas being pretty self-explanatory, earth being cliffs, and span being bridge. Really, it should be Babka jumping, but whatever, I get that that doesn't sound as cool. And Wong got that too. He wanted to do all four of these. And because building he thought would be the easiest one to accomplish, he went and he jumped off of a cliff, he jumped off of the Brooklyn Bridge, and he had jumped off of uh, the RKO antenna that takes over the whole Earth at the beginning of the RKO movies. And so he was feeling pretty good about himself, and he was like, you know what, I'm just going to jump off a skyscraper now. And Steve caught wind of that, and Steve, as you may have noticed, has a certain flair for the dramatic, and was like, oh, Wong, you don't want to jump off of just any building. You should jump off of the Fantastic Four's building, the Baxter building. Wouldn't that be more impressive? And Wong thought about it and was like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. But despite all my contacts, I've never really had a clear in with the Fantastic Four. And Dr. Strange was like, well, Wong, good news. I happen to have The Thing's phone number, and not only that, but I know that you're big aficionados of jazz music. There's a television program upcoming that I believe is a documentary about Charles Mingus. So why don't you two get together? You can smoke some cigars with The Thing and watch this jazz documentary. And I think that would be a nice time. And then you'll have an in and you can uh, ask him for that favor. And Wong's like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good. So on January 12th, The Thing came over and watched what Steve had assured Wong would be a documentary about the making of the album Mingus Dynasty. <laughs> but it was, in fact, the premiere of the soap opera Dynasty. And neither Wong nor The Thing were that impressed by this. I mean, the first season didn't even have Joan Collins in it, so what's the fucking point? Wong was just embarrassed and never even asked The Thing about the Baxter building. And then, a few days later, on January 16th, Phil Smith and Phil Mayfield jumped off of a skyscraper in Houston and became the first people to complete all four of the things that you can jump off in base jumping. 
Way to go, Steve. Yeah. And that's what Wong was probably up to in January of 1981. Nice. Well, Corey, thanks for talking about this comic with us. I'm excited to see what's next for the Defenders. The next issue that we cover is, I believe, going to be written by J.M. DeMatteis, who I'm a big fan of, and we can talk more about that in that episode and see how things are going to pan out for the world's greatest non-team. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be in a couple of weeks. And we'll be back next week to find out what happens with the new Teen Titans now that they are no longer dealing with the hybrid or brother blood. So that'll be interesting as well. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by contacting us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you would like to find us on uh, social media, you probably can. Just, you know, type us into your computer. Like, not in a word processing application. Although you can do that, too. But it won't help you find us on social media. Unless you're writing a letter and saying, Tighten up the defense, question mark. How can I find this on social media? Sincerely, a listener. And you mail that to me. And if you do, and you include a self-addressed stamped envelope, then... I would write you back a letter that says, uh, yeah, just type in Titan of the Defense into your search engine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can just save ourselves the time and the stamps because you can just type it into your search engine. <laughs> That's nice of you to save them time and stamps. That's what I'm here for, Corey. Mm-hmm. And hey, if you can't find us on the socials media or by typing us into your search engine, there's another place you can look. And that's deep in your heart. We'll be in there. Um, tidying up? Yeah, tidying up and not stinking the joint up with any Axe Body Spray Monkey pheromones. Mm. That's the Tighten Up the Defense guarantee. No ape spray. No way. If you would like to uh, support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash tt wasteland if you do you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material there is the monthly podcast what the duck a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show that is the howard the duck podcast that i co-host with my wife lisa those are a lot of fun there's also a ton of other bonus content up there there's a lot of video reviews of classic comic books and some other just extra podcasts on there as well that is exclusive to our donors. So that's one reason you might consider supporting the show. Another one, and from my perspective, the more important reason would be that it lets us know that you care about the show. Um, It really makes us doing the show possible, the donations that we get. So thank you so much for those. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, Corey's going to tell you how to do that. Um, you could leave a review in places that reviews can be left. You can tell a friend or anybody else that, uh, they might give the show a listen. Yeah. Tell the world. What's an example of a review people might want to leave in a place where a review can be left? 
you could say, uh, great job, guys. <laughs> Five stars. Succinct to the point. I like it. Really tells people <laughs> what they can expect. They can expect a great job. Are you concerned that people might think that we're offering them some kind of employment opportunity, that we would be giving them a great job? Because, frankly, we're not really in a position where we can do any hiring right now. Is that a concern you have, Corey? Well, I mean, worst case, we got some resumes, you know, when we're ready to expand. Mm. uh, Good point. We can. We're not obligated to hire anybody just because they say they would like a job. Well, you're the lawyer, you'd know. Um, like, honorary? When yeah, you you've got an honorary law degree, right? From you? Yeah. And I got mine from the School of Hard Knocks. Oh. They do not have a good law school. No. Really, none of their graduate facilities are any good. Mm. Their alumni are not particularly generous with the School of Hard Knocks, because, frankly, it was not a very pleasant undergraduate degree to achieve Mm -hmm. yeah hostile learning environment yeah it it really was uh i keep getting letters from them and no thanks well thanks for listening guys (laughs) (laughs) until next week remember chud yep man cousin larry just does not have many digits left at this point does he i i wouldn't think so no (laughs) chud Do you think it would be Bud the Chud from the sequel to the Chud movies, or would it be a different Chud? Um, gosh, I'm not really a sitcom writer, but I I do like the rhyme, Bud the Chud, so I'd I'd probably go with that. Yeah, there really aren't a ton of other names that rhyme with Chud. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any? No. Fudd the Chud. That would be specifically Elmer Fudd, and he's not a Chud. Flood the Chud? That sounds more like a directive. I, I mean, I believe there was a <laughs> uh, a woman in one of the Andrew Vox books named Flood, but that's not. No. That, that really doesn't work. No. No, not for a sitcom. <laughs> no, not, not for a sitcom. So yeah, I guess Bud the Chud it is. All right. uh, maybe it's a different actor playing Bud than in the movie, probably. I mean, we couldn't get a big star like Bud the Chud for the sitcom. Oh, no, it's probably a human in makeup. Yeah, that guy's offer only. Alright, bye! Bye! And they know it! Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, I guess I was hoping for more of a like a definitive closure to the Mandrel story arc. Well, I mean, he's dead. You can't get much more definitive than that. Uh, you're right. <laughs> I blocked that out already. His mom shot him. Oh my yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, I was thinking of the last issue where he just ran away. I mean, he ran away to hell i guess well yeah yeah i uh, um let me start that over i (laughs) i didn't go so well okay from the top okay
Corey, what'd you think of this comic book? Oh, thanks for asking again. I was confused when we first started talking about oh, it. Okay, well, see... That's not going to work either. <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> if you want a do-over, you can't acknowledge the do-over. That's true. Okay. <laughs> hey, third okay. time's the charm, am I right? We'll find out. Yeah.